The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Jeremiah 17. The first verse reads, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. And then go to verse 7, as the prophet writes, speaking from God, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool." A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. This is God's holy word, true in every part and possible way. May God help us to understand and apply it. Edgar Allan Poe's great suspense story called The Telltale Heart featured a man who committed a murder. He felt that he would have little problem getting away with it somehow. And you may remember the story. He disposed of the victim's body beneath the floorboards of the house in which he dwelt. Soon, because someone had heard a sound, a cry in the night, the police came to question this man. And their routine investigation didn't seem as though they had any heavy suspicion of the individual. And the murderer was quite confident that he could get away with it. And He granted the police an interview in the very room beneath which the body was buried. And as the questioning went on, he was feeling, all right, I'll I'll be able to get out of this. Nobody's got anything on me. But the man began to be alarmed. Because if you recall the story, he heard a sound, a soft, thudding kind of sound which to him sounded entirely like the beating of a heart. 
And he noticed that this sound rhythmically became louder and louder. And he looked at the police examiners and wondered if they did not hear it. Surely it was loud enough, and it seemed to be coming from beneath their feet. And it went on, and it became louder and more conspicuous. And finally, the man was so frantic and unhinged by this, thinking the the victim was not dead after all, that he confessed the crime. I did it. Pull up the floorboards. He must not be dead. And of course, he was dead. And the sound that was heard was not the victim's heart. It was the murderer's own heart thudding in his chest, convicting him of what he had done. His heart betrayed him. Well, Jeremiah, I think, could have written that story long before Edgar Allan Poe came along. Because the prophet Jeremiah diagnosed his own countrymen and mankind at large as having guilty hearts. And he gave us this wonderful line as the Holy Spirit spoke through him. The memorable line of this chapter is verse 9 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The King James Version says, desperately wicked. And then the question, who can understand it? You see, Jeremiah was called by God to speak the truth of God to the same nation that Isaiah prophesied to almost 100 years earlier. And we saw last time how God revealed through Isaiah chapter 6 that vision of who God was and what God was like, that he was high and exalted and lifted up. He was not a mere man or or some kind of a snake or an animal that somebody would carve out, that he was the holy God to be revered, to be worshipped. Well, now a century has passed and many kings have come and gone, good ones and more bad ones than good, and the people of the land of Judah, the southern part of Israel, have gone from bad to worse. They haven't listened to their prophets. There's been no great repentance. And now national and international events are conspiring that soon is going to bring the ruin of this nation. In fact, Jeremiah was the prophet that went right into that captivity and ruin. He saw it all happen. He was called the weeping prophet because he was there at the downfall. Well, last Sunday, I tried to emphasize that Isaiah gave us in capsule form a right concept about God, the holy God. If there's some pairing to be had between these two messages, I chose this one today because I believe Jeremiah is giving us in capsule form the right concept of human beings. And these are two very fundamental cornerstones that we must have. We must know who God is, and we must know what man is like. Everything builds on that. And people don't have a right concept of God, by and large, today, and do not have a a right concept of man and what it is about mankind that needs to be understood about us. We live in the self-esteem age, not an age when you want to talk too loudly or clearly about the biblical subject of human depravity. Even that word grates people. Depravity? Don't ruffle my child's self-esteem by talking about depravity. My goodness. And people will say, I just don't understand why you always have to be emphasizing sin. 
I think it's almost 25 years ago now that in my previous congregation in Maryland, a, a man joined the church. He was a retired minister of another denomination. He seemed to really like our church. And I guess he sort of liked the change of viewpoint or songs and all kinds of things that were different from his own background. And he joined and told me how much he liked the worship and the preaching and was there for quite a while. And then I missed him for a while. And we always try to find out, well, what happened? Where did you go? And a phone call to him said, oh, yes, well, I've cooled off a lot. And I don't think, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be continuing in your church. And I said, well, can you tell me about that? Is there something that I need to know? And he said, well, if you ask, I'll tell you. He said, I found that all you ever talk about is sin. This is a minister. This is an ordained minister. All you ever talk about is sin. There's no joy. There's no optimism about the human condition. That's exactly what he said. No optimism about the human condition. And I said, well, I have no optimism about the human condition. And he said, what? I said, yes, if you're talking about optimism for man as man or woman as woman, I have none. The only optimism I have is hope in Jesus Christ, completely changing men and women from the way they're constituted. Well, it was obvious we had a very different viewpoint. The idea of biblical depravity, as Jeremiah and others teach it here in verse 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick is not saying that every man and every woman is absolutely as bad as they can possibly be. That's not what the doctrine says. What it does say is that there is no part of our nature, no thought we can think, no motive we can have, no act of our will that is not at least tinged with, shadowed by our fallenness and the fact that we are in rebellion against God, even our best deeds that we do. Someone gives $50,000 to the university. Great, generosity. But then what's their first question? Where will, what room will be named after me? Well, I don't say that's a terrible thing. But yet there's the human ego, the human vanity saying, I'll be generous, but I'd like to be recognized. The heart, the scripture says, the innermost faculty, and it's not talking, of course, about the muscle in our chest, but our minds, our our whole rational thinking processes, our, our ethics, our morals, our soul, all this together that makes us act as a person, a rational person in this world is damaged. It's sick. We spoke a number of weeks ago about Genesis 3 where that all is told, where it happened in the first place. My reason for bringing this Jeremiah text in today, as I said, is a bit of a companion to last week. Because if we fail to grasp either who God really is, the holy God, or who we really are, men and women who are desperately sin sick, we will be in the same clueless lost condition that the people of the land of Judah were in in Jeremiah's day. Now very quickly as a first point, I just ask you to consider the heart predicament in the land of Judah. It was the 7th century B.C., 2,700 years ago, that's a long time, the Near East was in a state of political ferment. What else is new? And as a matter of fact, if you, if you looked at it in terms and said, what else is new? Babylon, the rising threatening power of that day, was the, the people located right exactly where Iran is today. Things change, but they don't really change. 
The Babylonians were the new power rising, the new kid on the block under Nebuchadnezzar. The Assyrians were fading. The Egyptians were an older power. They still were mighty and numerous, but their might was waning. And the Babylonians came along and basically knocked off both the Assyrians and the Egyptians, if you want a lot of history condensed. And right in between these mighty lands was the nation of Israel, the land of Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was. And Jeremiah was smart enough to know, even as a man, let alone God's prophet, that he needed to warn people, look, folks, there are mighty powers stirring all around us, and guess what's right in the middle? Us. Guess where the armies are going to march through and where the battles are going to happen? Nobody was very concerned. They particularly weren't concerned about their godliness and the calls to repent and turn to the Lord. So then in 587 B.C., the Babylonian army did march in, and Jerusalem fell, and all catastrophe came. The king was hauled off to Babylon, and you can read that story elsewhere. But it's how Jeremiah came to be called the weeping prophet. He predicted it, and he saw it happen. Now, Judah's ruin wasn't just a political event or a military event. It was a spiritual and moral event because the people had become decayed over decades and generations of ignoring the Lord. You notice how I read that first verse, 17.1, in which the prophet said their sin is written with a pen of iron. It's engraved in granite. The English Standard Version says, with a point of diamond. We know the the diamond cuts almost any substance and makes something indelible, not only on the tablet of their hearts, but on the horns of their altars, because their worship was polluted, let alone their individual hearts. Spiritual decay came before national disaster, like a cancer that metastasized over the generations until it took over. Now, this book of Jeremiah is complex, and we're not setting out to study it, but there are those experts on the book that would say that in some ways the heart of Jeremiah's message is right here in chapter 17. That's why I chose to address this. Here's the prophet standing on a stage of sweeping international events and and great moral and spiritual decay, and he says, look, the problem is not political. It won't be fixed by electing a different king or a different president or a new parliament or anything like that. The problem is inside us. It's in the nature of our hearts. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, says verse 5, and makes the flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So then I want you to flash forward 2,700 years to today. Now, we're not the land of Israel. We are not God's covenant people called for his special purpose. We are a land where Christianity has flourished and the gospel has been heard a great deal, but that doesn't make us identical to Israel. But nevertheless, I would have you consider the heart predicament here in modern America. We in America are now so quickly becoming so corrupt at our spiritual core that our sins, too, are inscribed as if with an iron pen. We're all caught up in the Olympics. I watched them till 11 o'clock last night. It's great to cheer for our young heroes and heroines. Thrilling to see the races. 
But you know, I wonder if you have the perspective to stand back a little bit from the fact. I was looking at the chart showing, oh, well, great, America's still in the lead for medals. My goodness, we don't want to let those Chinese overtake us, do we? Used to be the Russians. But I asked myself when I saw that last night, what is it going to matter in one month, in 10 years, or before the judgment throne of God, whether America has the lead in Olympic medals? Here we are reveling in the world of sports, and it's a wonder. I don't condemn sports. But here we are caught up in this as if this is our great reality and reveling in this and congratulating ourselves and our athletes while voices in our government at every level right up to the highest place openly mock God's revealed design for what marriage is, what the family is, gender roles, personal accountability, national responsibility, these things are almost gone out the window. And our rising younger generation doesn't even know what they don't know anymore. What God has taught on these things. It's just all, oh, well, you know, I, I have a friend who thinks this, and I think his argument is very convincing. It doesn't matter whether God has spoken. Maybe you like to think, and it's easy perhaps to deceive yourself in this particular time every four years when the Olympics are going on, that the right image for our country is a Michael Phelps. How tall is that guy anyway? Six five, six six, broad, muscular, trim waist, you know, beautiful Missy Franklin. These wonderful athletes, aren't they the image of America? Not morally and spiritually, they're not. The moral and spiritual image of this country to me is much more like a frail, emaciated hospice patient headed into the last phase of its life as a free people. You know, there have been times in my ministry over the years, and it occurs every once in a while, and I usually think the person isn't trying to be insulting, but a businessman or maybe somebody involved in government will be speaking to me and and we're we're talking about Christianity, and this person will say at some point, well, pastor, you know what? I work every day out there in the real world. The real world. And I always wonder what they're actually saying to me. I think there's an implication, at least, that Christian ministers don't live in the real world, that the Bible or Christianity is not a part of the real world. Those who preach the Word of God in our technological age, driven by money and power and greed, don't get it. We're stuck with myths, with superstitions, and some people think of Christianity as a sort of spiritual narcotic that we take to avoid reality. Well, I beg to differ. There isn't anybody more realistic than the person who understands the psychology, the philosophy, and the moral viewpoint of the Bible. The Word of God shows us men and women with all their warts and all their feet of clay, even the greatest heroes, the great patriarchs, the apostles, they lie, they cheat, they, they commit adultery, they do everything you could possibly think a human being would do to disgrace himself. And yet they are related to the one true God and know what it means to come back to him and repent before him and then walk in faith with him. What a joke to think that the modern media of today or the American secular mindset is called reality. 
Did you ever watch reality TV? Reality TV? The only thing that's reality about it is that most of the people in it are not paid actors. But they go through the most contrived, silly situations somehow to amuse us. That's not reality. The Word of God knows and understands the naked, unvarnished truth about men and women in our weaknesses, our lies, our lusts, our failures, our fears. Yes, even as Christians. The Word of God understands us, and it tells us what reality is. And Jeremiah was summarizing it here in 17.9. The heart of a human being is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. God says you need this understanding. You may not like it. You may say I'll go to a church where they're more optimistic, where they tell me more positive things that make me happy. This is the truth of God. And if you don't have this right understanding, I often tremble when students from our church go off to a great university and I say, well, what are you studying? Psychology. I'm not here to blanket condemn the field of psychology, but I'm afraid for them. Because if they're studying at a great university, they're studying the theories of psychology that begin with man and end with man and basically are morally neutral about man. They certainly don't understand man in a biblical way. Here we are needing to understand that we have a fatal virus called sin. We don't like the word, but it's true about us. When a human atrocity occurs like two weekends ago at the Colorado movie theater shooting, you know how the press wrings its hands, oh, and the governor gets on TV or something, and oh, we have to pass new laws so this can never happen again. Well, governor, it's going to happen again. And if not in your state, in some other state, and it hasn't got anything to do with gun laws or better legislation, it's got to do with the human heart. And unless you find a way, Governor, to transform the human heart, those kind of atrocities are going to keep on happening just as they have happened throughout all the ages, going back to the time of the prophets and even before that. There's a festering motive of anger, pride, egotism, bent thinking in every one of us. And and many pressures hold it in check for many of us, our our culture, our our manners, Our laws hold it in check, but then many times it just breaks out and acts in some bizarre way to become an addiction or an act of violence or a theft or a lie or an act of lust, and and on it goes, snowballing its way through society. And it's not only that we're sick. You see, Jeremiah got two things right here. We're not only desperately sick. In fact, the first thing he said was, we're deceitful about it. We cover it up. We wear masks. We don't let anybody know what we really are. I've been pretty fascinated by the Facebook phenomenon. Some of you who are older may have ignored it entirely. All of you who are younger know exactly what I'm talking about. I do check on Facebook several times a week. I I almost never communicate myself on it, but I see what other people are saying. My wife's got got us connected to all these different people, and so I'm watching you out there. If you're on my friend list, I'm watching you. I may not be commenting, but I'm watching. And I learn a lot about the lives of young adults and young families who are saying things on Facebook. And please, I don't say this to insult you. 
I really don't. I think it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic in our society. But you would think we have this, all right, it's a communication medium, and here we are. We're, we're communicating. Some of you are probably doing it right now. Teenagers, I know you're out there. I, I can see things from here, you know. I see those things in your hand. You would think, with all that communication media, that we would be exposing the deep things of our hearts to one another, right? We would really know the depths of another person. Let me tell you, I don't think Facebook has served to expose the depths of one other person in all of America. Most of what's there, you have to beg my pardon and my judgmentalism, is chatter. It's superficial. It's happy. It's okay. Put your pictures there of your picnic and all. Great. Fine. But all this communication has not made us transparent people. And as a matter of fact, for some people, it's just given them a little stage on which their ego can create an alternative reality. And they can even convince themselves and project to the world, this is the person I want to be, and everybody thinks that's who you are. So what it's really doing is deceiving in many cases. We don't confide in one another. Husbands don't know their wives in so many cases. Ask Dr. Light. No, don't ask him. He won't tell you, but... Husbands don't know their wives, and wives don't know their husbands. You know what happens every time? How often have you seen this? A murder, a a bizarre crime occurs. Where do the reporters go? Next door neighbor. Okay, next door neighbor, what kind of a person was this like who did this terrible thing? Oh, my goodness, he was just a wonderful guy. He helped me shovel my driveway. Uh, He raked up leaves for me. He was a great guy. How could that be? when he shot his wife and his two children? Well, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's how. The Bible knows that. Well, this morning I've got to draw this to a close. But Jeremiah raises this question. Who can understand the human heart? I'll ask it a different way. Where would we turn to go for a new heart? And Jeremiah actually answers his own question, beginning in verse 10. And when he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and the fruit of his deeds. God sees right through your heart. He knows who you are. Your deceptions, your masks, your your little charades don't deter his grasp of reality at all. And then look what Jeremiah said as as the passage goes down a little further there in verse 12. Notice what he says. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Whoa, how did that get in there? All of a sudden, Jeremiah is talking about what Isaiah was talking about. The Lord, high and lifted up. And he's saying, I don't have to stay dwelling at the level of human degradation and secrets and violence and lust and all of that that stirs secretly inside of a man. I look elsewhere. I look to an eternal throne. And then from that viewpoint, looking to the throne of God, notice his prayer where I stopped reading in verse 14. It's simple, but it's powerful. He cries out to God for mercy and says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me. And I will be saved, for you are my praise. I'm not my praise. 
I'm not so enamored with myself that I'm saying to the world, look at me, praise me. So interesting seeing how some athletes can actually be humble and others don't understand humility at all. Jeremiah said, I'm not my praise, you're my praise. I look to you. I come to you for divine healing. I come to you for something radical that will change me. And isn't that what we say Christ did on his cross? He came to create a heart transplant, a radical surgery that the the Bible elsewhere says takes out of man the heart of stone and puts in him a heart of flesh. Jeremiah glimpsed that at least. He glimpsed that Romans 10 would one day teach that with the heart one believes and is justified. Well, how does that come to be if the heart is desperately wicked and can't even see what it's doing? Well, it's because God will come and change the heart. Acts 16 tells of Lydia, a businesswoman who heard the gospel of Jesus preached by Paul, and the text says in Acts, the Lord opened her heart to receive God's message. God is the great heart surgeon. We look to his throne, set on high from the beginning as a sanctuary. From there it is that Jesus Christ came and took our sin, our lostness, our hopelessness, and Colossians said he nailed it to the cross. It's very likely that somebody here has never known anything about the heart change that God brings through Jesus Christ. Many of you have known about it. You've even called out to him in the past, but you've wandered far like the people of Judah since then, and you've got things written on your heart with a pen of ink or a pen of iron that you don't feel like can be erased. The God who offers a new heart is he who says, I will blot out your sins. And remember them no more. And so today, if you sense a need for a change, I call on you to look to this God and his high throne and call on the name of Jesus Christ and say, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me. I will be saved. You will. He is the guarantee of it. Our Father, we ask, as we come, each of us, to consider whether we should be at your table or all the business that has gone on in our life since we were the last time, we would know where to look. Look to that throne of yours and the righteous Jesus dying in our place. We say, O God, heal me, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved for Jesus' sake. Amen.